Chapter Three of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craig. Chapter Three. It was many days before Mrs. Rothsay recovered from the shock occasioned by the tidings, to her almost more fearful than her child's death, that it was doomed for life to suffer the curse of hopeless deformity. For a curse, a bitter curse, this seemed to the young and beautiful creature who had learned since her birth to consider beauty as the greatest good. She was, so to speak, in love with loveliness, not merely in herself but in every human creature. This feeling sprang more from enthusiasm than from personal vanity, the borders of which meanness she had just touched but never crossed. Perhaps, also, she was too conscious of her own loveliness, and admired herself too ardently to care for attracting the petty admiration of others. She took it quite as a matter of course, and was no more surprised at being worshipped than if she had been the goddess of beauty herself. But if Sibylla Rothsay gloried in her own perfections, she no less gloried in those of all she loved, and chiefly in her noble-looking husband. And they were so young, so quickly wed, and so soon parted, that this emotion had no time to deepen into that soul-united affection which is independent of outward things, or rather, becomes so divine, that instead of beauty creating love, love has power to create beauty. No marvel, then, that not having attained to a higher experience, Sibylla considered beauty as all in all. And this child, her child and Angus's, would be a deformity, a shame to its parents, a dishonor to its race. How should she ever bear to look upon it? Still more, how should she ever dare to show the poor cripple to its father and say, This is our child, our firstborn? Would he not turn away in disgust, and answer that it had better died? Such exaggerated fancies as these haunted the miserable mother, when she passed from her long swoon into a sort of fever, which, though scarce endangering her life, was yet for days a source of great anxiety to the devoted Elspie. To the unhappy infant this madness, for it was temporary madness, almost caused death. Mrs. Rothsay positively refused to see or notice her child, scorning alike the tearful entreaties and the stern reproaches of the nurse. At last Elspie ceased to combat this passionate resolve, springing half from anger and half from delirium. "'God forgie ye, and save the innocent bairn, the doctor he gave, and that you're gone to murder, unthankful woman as ye are,' muttered Elspie under her breath, as she quitted the room and went to succour the almost dying babe. Over it her heart yearned as it had never yearned before. "'Your mither cast ye off, ye poor wee thing. Maybe you're no lang for this world, but while you're in it ye shall be my ain lassie, and I'll be your ain mammy evermore." So, like Naomi of old, Elspie Murray laid the child in her bosom and became nurse unto it. But for her the life of our Olive Rothsay, with all its influences, good or evil, small or great as yet unknown, would have expired like a faint flickering taper. Perhaps, in her madness, the unhappy mother might almost have desired such an ending. As it was, the disappointed hope, which had at first resembled positive dislike, subsided into the most complete indifference. She endured her child's presence, but she took no notice of it. She seemed to have forgotten its very existence. Her shattered health supplied sufficient excuse for the utter abandonment of all a mother's duties, and the poor, feeble spark of life was left to Elspie's cherishing. By night and by day the child knew no other resting-place than the old nurse's arms, the mother's seeming to be forever closed to its helpless innocence. True, Sibylla kissed it once a day, when Elspie brought the little creature to her, 
and exacted as a duty the recognition which Mrs. Rothsay, girlish and yielding as she was, dared not refuse. Her husband's faithful retainer had over her an influence which could never be gainsaid. Elsby seemed to be the sole regent of the babe's destiny. It was she who took it to its baptism, not the festal ceremony which had pleased Sibylla's childish fancy, with visions of christening robes and cakes, but the beautiful and simple naming of Elsby's own church. She stood before the minister, holding the desolate babe in her protecting arms, and there her heart sealed the promise of her lips to bring it up in the knowledge and fear of God. And with an earnest credulity, which contained the germ of purest faith, she, remembering the mother's dream, called her nursling by the name of Olive. She carried the babe home and laid it on Mrs. Rothsay's lap. The young creature who had so strangely renounced that dearest blessing of mother-love would fain have put the child aside, but Elsby's stern eye controlled her. Ye mon kiss and bless your doctor? Nay tongue but her mither should ca her by her new christen name? What name? The name ye geet her ye ain't sell? No, no, surely you have not called her so. Take her away. She is not my sweet angel baby, the darling in my dream. And Sibylla hid her face, not in anger or disgust, but in bitter weeping. She's your ain doctor, Olive Rothsay? answered Elsby, less harshly. She may be an angel to ye yet. While she spoke, it so chanced that there flitted over the infant face one of those smiles that we see sometimes in young children, strange, causeless smiles, which seem the reflection of some invisible influence. And so, while the babe smiled, there came to its face such an angel brightness that it shone into the mother's careless heart. For the first time since that mournful day which had so changed her nature, Sibylla Rothsay sat down and kissed the child of her own accord. Elsby heard no maternal blessing. The name of Olive was never breathed, but the nurse was satisfied when she saw that the babe's second baptism was its mother's repentant tears. There was in Sibylla no hardness nor cruelty, only the disappointment and vexation of a child deprived of an expected toy. She might have grown weary of her little daughter almost as soon, even if her pride and hope had not been crushed by the knowledge of Olive's deformity. Love to her seemed a treasure to be paid in requital, not a free gift bestowed without thought of return. That self-forgetting maternal devotion, lavished first on unconscious infancy and then on unregarding youth, was a mystery to her utterly incomprehensible. At least it seemed so now, when, with the years and the character of a child, she was called to the highest duty of a woman's life. This duty comes to some girlish mothers as an instinct, but it was not so with Mrs. Rothsay. An orphan, and heiress to a competence, if not to wealth, she had been brought up like a plant in a hotbed, with all natural impulses either warped or suppressed, or forced into undue luxuriance. And yet it was a sweet plant withal, one that might have grown, aye, and might yet grow, into perfect strength and beauty. Mrs. Rothsay's education, that education of heart and mind and temper, which is essential to a woman's happiness, had to begin when it ought to have been completed, at her marriage. Most unfortunate it was for her, that ere the first twelve-month of their wedded life had passed, Captain Rothsay was forced to depart for Jamaica, whence was derived his wife's little fortune, their whole fortune now, for he had quitted the army on his marriage. Thus Sibylla was deprived of that wholesome influence which man has ever over a woman who loves him, and by which he may, if he so will, counteract many a fault and weakness in her disposition. Time passed on, 
and Mrs. Rothsay, a wife and mother, was at twenty-one years old just the same as she had been at seventeen, as girlish, as thoughtless, eager for any amusement, and often treading on the very verge of folly. She still lived at Stirling, enforced thereunto by the entreaties, almost the commands of Elsby Murray, against whom she bitterly murmured sometimes, for shutting her up in such a dull Scotch town. When Elsby urged her unprotected situation, the necessity of living in retirement, for the honour of the family, while Captain Angus was away, Mrs. Rothsay sometimes frowned, but more often put the matter off with a merry jest. Meanwhile she consoled herself by going as much into society as the limited circle of Dr. and Mrs. Johnson allowed, and therein, as usual, the lovely, gay, winning young creature was spoiled to her heart's content. So she still lived the life of a wayward, petted child, whose natural instinct for all things good and beautiful kept her from ever doing what was positively wrong, though she did a great deal that was foolish enough in its way. She was, as she jestingly said, a widow bewitched, but she rarely coquetted, and then only in that innocent way which comes natural to some women, from a universal desire to please, and she never ceased talking and thinking of her noble Angus. When his letters came, she always made a point of kissing them half a dozen times, and putting them under her pillow at night, just like a child. And she wrote to him regularly once a month, pretty playful loving letters. But there was in them one peculiarity. They were utterly free from that delicious maternal egotism which chronicles all the little incidents of babyhood. She said, in answer to her husband's questions, that Olive was well, Olive could just walk, Olive had learned to say Papa and Elsby, nothing more. The fatal secret she had not dared to tell him. Her first letters, full of joy about the loveliest baby that ever was seen, had brought his in return echoing the rapture with truly paternal pride. They reached her in her misery, to which they added tenfold. Every sentence smote her with bitter regret, even with shame, as though it were her fault in having given to the world the wretched child. Captain Rothsay expressed his joy that his little daughter was not only healthy but pretty, for he said he should be quite unhappy if she did not grow up as beautiful as her mother. The words pierced Sibylla's heart. She could not, dared not tell him the truth, not yet at least and whenever Elsby's rough honesty urged her to do so, she fell into such agonies of grief and anger that the nurse was obliged to desist. Sometimes, when letter after letter came from the father, full of inquiries about his precious firstborn, Sibylla, whose fault was more in weakness than deceit, resolved that she would nerve herself for the terrible task. But it was vain, she had not strength to do it. The three years extended into four, and still Captain Rothsay sent gift after gift, and message after message to his daughter. Still he wrote to the conscience-stricken mother how many times he had kissed the little lock of golden hue severed from the baby head, picturing the sweet face and lithe active form which he had never seen, and all the while there was stealing about the old house at Stirling, a pale, deformed child, small and attenuated in frame, quiet beyond its years, delicate, spiritless, with scarce one charm that would prove its lineage from the young beautiful mother, out of whose sight it instinctively crept. Thus the years fled with Olive Rothsay and her parents, each month, each day, sowing seeds that would assuredly spring up, for good or for evil, in the destinies of all three. End of chapter 3